Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. All right. Dr. Karitha Mitchell is here, my co-host for the day, and joining us. Uh, there's a lot of titles here, a lot, a lot of, of work put in. Dr. Erica Taylor is with us as well, orthopedic surgeon, also a leader in diversity and inclusion, which she said is life-changing in the medical field. Um, uh, we were talking off mic about this um, MBA that you have. <laughs> I was like, why? Why did you do that? Why would you go to school and get another degree in business? Yes. You know, I, um, I get that question a lot. I have no regrets. And yes, my role in D and I is life changing. This was even more life altering in in a very positive way. And so, you know, I'll I'll go back just a little bit. You know, I talked a little bit of how I grew up and what I grew around, which was education is excellence. Education leads to opportunity. I mean, that's still in my head. I also grew up, I think someone mentioned Jack and Jill. I was in Jack and Jill. And I was also in an area where there were successful Black families in business. So I have to give a special shout out to one of our old family friends, Grant Hill, who you may know as a supreme everything yes. <laughs> uh, and yes. a businessman, right? Yes. So not, not only a premier athlete, not only a team owner, but also a business-minded art, person. Art, a lot of art that- collector, art collector. Thank you, yes. yes. You know, a lot of that comes from his mother who was instrumental in my time here at Duke. And so I had these business giants around me and I started getting these alumni emails because I was a Duke Med alum as well. And they were from the business school. And they would say, come check out Duke Black alumni from Fuqua School of Business talking about this and that. And a lot of them were venture capitalists in New York and private equity firm holders uh, and CEOs of major companies. So I went and the title of that particular session was Controlling Your Narrative. And I thought back to that particular time in my medical professional career where I wanted to lead. I grew up wanting to do this work, but I wasn't really seen as a leader by my majority counterparts. I would see some of my majority male associates you know, like a John, a Mike, a David, an Eric, get these promotions or get these titles that were inaugural. And I said, well, why can't that be me too? And I couldn't convince or show them that I belonged in the C-suite or I belonged in leadership. So I decided to get something very objective where there was a track record of Black excellence. And that was a business degree from FUPA. And so, you know, I talked to my husband, you know, we did a lot of compromising on this. Um, fortunately, he's very interested into, you know, black business creation, investment, stock, stock options. And so it wasn't difficult to get him to agree to, you know, hold down the fort a little bit for 19 months while I did this. But as opposed to med school, where the narrative was proved that you deserve to be a doctor, business school from day one orientation was you're great. You know, she's great. He's great. They're great. Everybody's great. Let us show you over 19 months how great you are. And that was so different. And I think even as an adult, even someone with a job, I needed that. I needed that reinstatement, recharge of my new version of myself at age 39 at the time. 
that this was the right thing to do. And I, because I funded it on my own, I took every class, every free class. I was sure I paid for it. I took a free session on entrepreneurship that actually led to the development of my company. Um, it was life-changing and I was able to get said inaugural position because of the track record of excellence, black and otherwise, that that program had. All right. Um, I'm, I'm reevaluating some things uh, as a result of this conversation. And I thank you for that because that's the, the point of having conversations, right? This is why we, we go outside of our comfort zone. This is why we talk to people not like ourselves who think differently so that you can imagine uh, and, and press yourself. I feel like, you know, if you're not pressing yourself to see what you're made of, to see all of the things that you're pos- you can possibly do, then how do you ever reach your full potential, right? And a lot of us just stay in our comfort zone because this is what we know. Hot dogs and pork and beans. This is what I know. This is what I grew up with. This is all I'm eating. I'm not going to taste that n- new stuff over there. I'm not going to even try it. I, I so appreciate this. So for you going to business school, as I listen to you, my thing has always been, because my father had a grocery store, so I'm like, I'm not going to ask you to, to give me entree into your space. I'm going to create my own space. It's always, always been. I'm not going to beg for a seat at your table. I'm not going to try to make, convince you that I'm great. I'm going to show you. My mama used to say, I can show you better than I can tell you. So my thing is like, I could build. I don't need crumbs. I can bake. I got two eggs, some flour, some sugar. I'm going to bake my own food. You, you're welcome to a slice of my cake, but I can bake and, I, and it's endless. I got endless ingredients. So let's go. But if it, so is there an either or or both in your opinion, Dr. Erica? Like, is it again, I'm, I'm processing yeah, in real time. It, Should I, do I have to go? No, to this is, this is great. This? I, I enjoy this conversation. I actually try to have it as often as I can because no one had it with me, right, uh, until later on. And so I think it's a both. Um, you have, we have, everybody has this innate gift. Depending on who's around you, the recognition of that gift may not happen. Or it may happen at a time where 30 other opportunities have passed. So the earlier you can be in an environment, you mentioned earlier, Karen, not necessarily needing a doctor that is race concordant with you, but a doctor that cares about you. So imagine if you in your educational journey had people who cared about you and who tapped into that discovery. I mean, very much of what I did in business school was not anyone telling me how to do financial accounting or managerial economics or any of that. It was, here's a problem, show me how you'll fix it. Here's a balance sheet from Nordstrom's. Show me how you interpret it. And so you get to actually see what you would do in those situations and how you interact with others. Hearing and learning from people who are from all over the world, that also poured into me too. And that was not something that is readily allowable in medicine. I actually don't, I'm not advocating for it to be in medicine because you do need to know what not to cut when you perform surgery on someone. We do not have all the time to sing Kumbaya together when somebody's <laughs> heart stops. Come like on. I need you to know how to bring that back. So you don't necessarily get that in med school, but business school was, was very different. All right. I brought you here to talk about orthopedic 
<laughs> not just diversity okay. because as a double knee uh replacement person mm. they got both of them done at the same time a couple of decembers ago uh my life has been changed for the better i'm now doing now i'm up to eleven thousand steps a day i have not missed uh, a day of at least 10 11 000 over the last uh 15 20 days because i'm up in 500 steps every 40 days but no pain like and i just i was reminded because i went to see my mom who got one knee done and the other knee is still problematic and she's you know scared and nervous about going back in because she's of a certain age and i was like quality of life if, when because you're healthy you walking around, you don't deserve to have a cane. You don't deserve to to not be able to, because she loves to dance. To not, when, when the music comes on, to to get your, your dance on, Dr. Caritha, she could do that extra spin on the, you know, <laughs> on the, she, she got the rhythm I didn't necessarily yeah. get. Uh, my mother could dance. And I, you know, I just think about her. That's where she has joy to not, to not have joy because your joint is arthritic and twisted. Go get it done. For you, you work on the hands. Uh, what what yeah. kinds of injuries are you seeing and what are you performing surgery on and what's your recommendation on joint replacement? Ah, so many things. So yes. um, you're right. You know, I did intend to become a sports medicine doctor, right? So I could have done your knees had I taken that route. But halfway through residency, I fell in love with hand surgery. Um, it was amazing. We do so many things. So the way orthopedics is structured is you have your hip and knee people, your spine folks, shoulder and elbow folks. And then I do hand, wrist and elbow surgery. There's also tumor, foot and ankle, and then straight up joint replacement trained people as well. For hand and wrist, I see everything you would see in the other body parts, just only in that region. So arthritis, tendon injuries or ruptures, tendonitis, pediatric anomalies. So you know, we as Black people are more likely to have something that's called polydactyly, which is an extra finger, an extra small finger. Wait, so that are, falls in why, the, why? Why? We So look, I, we could talk about that offline. There's a lot of genetics to go into that. Wow. But there is a particular condition called... So that baby, that baby pinky off the, the, off baby, the pinky is is more prevalent little, in black people sometimes a little nub or they call it a nubbin and, yeah. and you could tie it off in the nursery but that actually impacts black patients black children more than white so all of that falls into hand fractures so if you fall off your you know bike and fracture your your wrist or your elbow i can fix that for you and then also a lot of work-related injuries so those are kind of difficult to manage for multiple reasons but a lot of machinists who get their fingers stuck and cut or crushed and then we put them back together. So can you fix long this? story short, it was, I, I have advice for you on that. Okay. So you want it right now? Or? Yeah, give it to, I'm, you know, this is the show. We're here. <laughs> so I, I do have patients such as yourself who present with something that's called a boutonniere deformity, oh. which means a particular structure called the central slip has thinned out so much that you can't extend that second joint of your finger. In general, as long as you're able to make a full fist and function, especially if it's your small finger, I tell people to leave it alone. So I am as great as a surgeon as I am as someone telling you not to go under surgery. And I think that's a balance that we have to have. Being who I am, a lot of patients come see me because whether they're right or wrong, they look at my picture and they say, that looks like a surgeon who will listen to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's that's another story in of itself. But, you know, for you, I would leave it be because if your finger, if I operate on it, 
and I make it perfectly straight as I know I could, you lose the ability to grip and you would be upset with me. And then we yeah, never, no, I need to be able like, to punch. We, we yes. can never talk ever again. So yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yes, I can make a fist. So that's good. <laughs> Dr. Mitchell's here. Uh, Dr. Erica Taylor is here. The number is 866-801-8255. So Dr. Taylor, yes. now that I understand that hands are your specialty, I have to ask, when I'm doing the little pad on my mouse on the laptop and I get pain, like maybe here or just all of that kind of pain. Like, should I be worried that carpal tunnel syndrome is coming? Um, is that what that means? And whether that's what it means or not, what is your advice about the lifestyle of someone who's constantly on the computer and typing? What are some of the things we can proactively do to keep our hand health? Yeah, no, I love that question. It actually is probably the most common conversation I have with patients. So a couple of things. One, if you are experiencing symptoms that you interpret as pain, like localized base of my thumb pain, it's likely not carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal mm -hmm. tunnel syndrome is a nerve entrapment of the median nerve at the level of the wrist. And so be, if you think of a nerve as having sensory fibers, your most predominant symptoms, of course, there's always exceptions, but you will tell me I have numbness and tingling. Uh, or I wake up at night and have to shake my hand or rearrange my elbow or my wrist to get my fingers to wake up again. Or I had a patient, she said, it feels like grits are in my fingers. And I knew what she meant, right? Mm -hmm. So two different things. Pain and pressure spots could be the beginning of arthritis. There's a very common joint in women in particular, a third of us 40 and up, which may not apply to you, Dr. Mitchell. Oh, it absolutely it. does. Not making assumptions. <laughs> But, um, and it's thumb basilar joint arthritis. And some of the first signs is pain when you are directly leaning on it. So for computer use, mouse use, there are so many ergonomic accessories. You can get a gel pad. You can get something that doesn't allow you to rest right on that area. If it gets much worse, there is an intervention that I do, um, a joint replacement for worst cases, but most patients don't need that. You could just do a little modification. I actually give a shout out to hand therapists who are generally occupational therapists, but they're part of my team. And so I would say about 50 or 60% of my patients are also in hand therapy for some of that ergonomic activity related teaching. If you're a musician, I say, bring your guitar, bring your flute. If you're a server, bring your, your you know little tray so that they can cater a program to you. But lots of options wow. outside of surgery. That Thank is a, you. You're incredible. Dr. Erica is incredible. All right. Yes. Uh, ortho, ortho leader DEI is, is the organization that you, that that's your business. Oh, um, thanks for asking about that. So that's, it's funny. It's a social media handle, but the name of the organization is the orthopedic diversity leadership consortium, orthodiversity.org. Um, it's specifically for DEI leaders in healthcare. I think one of the most interesting things about it is in 2020, you know, it started as a group of six of us who were getting asked, you know, what's your plan? What's your pay? Do this work. And people were calling me a lot from all these other centers because they thought I was doing a pretty good job. And how can I teach them what to do? It was about an hour per phone call. You know, at the time I had three kids, it was just a lot going on. So I said, why don't we just become a group? And then there were 20 of us and there were 40. I said, all right, let me give us a name. 
all right, let me put a website together. And now there's over 250 members. Majority are physicians, but quite a few are medical device industry leaders. So your striker leaders, your Johnson & Johnson to QCINFI leaders who know they want to do something, but they don't know what to do. So this is not DEI 101. This is not why is diversity important. This is literally how do you put together a communication that doesn't sound not genuine? How do you put a committee together? How do you negotiate for resources from power? You know, how do you create a plan? I mean, it's really my business education just in small bites and it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful. And my tagline is who said DEI leadership shouldn't be fun. And I told some of my board members, if it ever stops becoming fun, we won't do this anymore. We'll disband. But y'all want to bring some elevation to the role, especially since so many of us are in the roles. Why shouldn't it be a coveted position that people aspire to, like a chair or a chancellor yes. or a CEO? So I want to yes. make it great. See, see, that this is why you're needed. All right, Dr. Erica Taylor is here. The number is 866-801-8255. Dr. Caritha Mitchell is here as well. She does not have carpal tunnel. Uh, let's go to uh, Taylor <laughs> in Michigan who is holding on. Welcome to the Carrot Hunter Show. Hi. Hi. Welcome to uh, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Mitchell, and Professor Hunter. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to say that um, I'm a registered nurse. I've been one from way back, so back in the 80s. And I also had the unique experience of also being a affirmative action and program manager for EEO, and that's what they called it back in the days. So we handled affirmative action plans for agencies, and we did the, uh, the discrimination complaints, et cetera. I actually worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs as one of the agencies and also for the state of North Carolina. Um, oh, wow. And, Karen, speaking of injuries, I had uh, patellar tendon repair and, and uh, cervical spine surgery. So God bless. I'm, I'm covering all the bases. You are a warrior, sir. Thank uh, you. But, but I do want to say the first thing about um, um, health care, there is bias in health care, and that's the most recent things I've experienced just getting my spinal surgery. And the doctors tend not to um, recognize your pain and, and your knowledge base, and they tended to be kind of challenged because I was a registered nurse asking questions. Um, about my treatment, about the prognosis, et cetera, and that was an issue. And I know I'm jumping around. I know I'm speaking fast, so I apologize. And I wanted to also say about working in affirmative action and EEO, et cetera, it never works unless you have support from the top. And I had to have agency management step in sometimes because working for the federal government, the doctors, and this is the chief of staff, he told me to my face, he said, you know, the other doctors don't care about this like you do. And that meant until that hospital director stepped in to correct that and get my back, I couldn't be effective in getting affirmative action plans, looking at recruitment, quotas, et cetera. Mm. That's all I got. Sorry. I, I, no, I'm No, 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 no. Listen, it's, you, you, uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for all of the things that you do. Um, Dr. Taylor, you know, this, as, as he's talking, as you're, you're both talking, I, I start my, my day thinking about the world that I want to live in. And I, I remember like it was yesterday, I had a doctor on who, who was trained in Cuba and she talked about in Cuba, they had like a nurse or a doctor and just about every block, the doctors and nurses knew all of the patients, what people, the human beings that lived in their community. And it reminds me of my mom growing up in Augusta, you know, the teacher, the doctor, everybody lived in the community. It was a time when black people lived in community 
and you know we took care of each other because we you know because of segregation we didn't have a choice right no one moved out you know keith ellison talks about his father being a doctor living in detroit and having the Cadillac and the kids, you know, in the neighborhood, never saw a Cadillac or whatever. And it was important for him to stay in the neighborhood as a doctor. You know, now we're in this place where, you know, it's it's different, but should it be? And if you were handed the power to change medicine, mm. where would you start and what would that change look like? Ooh. So I'd start. I'd start likely with the structure of healthcare organization. I know that sounds like not a a very deep answer. I have learned that a lot of the issues that I run into, that my patients run into, that our community runs into have to do with policy and procedure. And so I I talk often very honestly, I mean, you can Google it too, about the history of Duke Hospital. Duke Hospital was built in a very segregated time, 1930 in North Carolina by people who had tobacco money who were considered progressives. And as much as they wanted to treat black people and white people the same, Jim Crow, the Great Depression, separated patients who were black from patients who were white, patients who could pay from patients who couldn't pay. And so a lot of what I feel and live in in 2023 is built on structure, policy, organization rooted in systemic racism. And people often say, well, why are you always spoken about racism? There's all these dimensions of diversity. True. But we know that if we help other dimensions like gender, et cetera, it helps, but it helps just those people. If you unpack racism, it helps everybody. So if I can figure out a way to get transparency and pay, to open the doors for all patients to get the same high quality wealthy patients get, everybody benefits, but we have to unpack the historic structure that was rooted in that time. So I would start with the organization structure. Who are the gatekeepers? Can we remove that as even an option of being a gatekeeper and then you know, go from there. So I'd start with structure. Okay. All right. 866-801-8255. Uh, Dr. Mitchell's here. Dr. Erica Taylor is here. Uh, let's go to Tasha in Newark, Newark, New Jersey. She has a question for you. Hi. Hello. Tasha. How is everyone? Awesome. I have a question. My husband, um, he suffered a stroke in 2019. And as a result, he has right side weakness, and he has the the gripping of the hand. I think they called it tone, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Um, yep. How do we, um, is there any way to repair it or for um, to get any movement or to straighten the hand out? I mean, we use the brace um Every now and again, um, we haven't done occupational therapy in a while, so I'm going back to Kessler to, um, to sign him back up. But is there anything else that we could do or if the fingers would be able to be permanently straightened? Yeah, thank you for your question, Tasha. I, I mean, this is one of the most complicated situations, and I, I'm sorry that your husband is going through this. Um, I do see patients who have post-stroke weakness or hypertone 
in their muscles that'll give them what they used to call a claw hand or some type of really clenched fist. Um, depending on your husband's age and the integrity of the muscles themselves, in general, the neurologist can recommend things like Botox injections that you would have to repeat fairly regularly to get the muscle tone to pause. Same reason people put it in their face in a way. Um, and then worst case, there are surgeries that can make the fingers straight. But as I was saying to Karen, it takes a lot of in tandem discussion with the therapist to make sure we are not prioritizing form over function. Because if you do fusions, which I do often, to make the digits straighter, it has to be in a certain position. So I have many a thumb because people want to hold a can of beer, right? They have some other deformity. They can't hold a can of beer. I have a patient who's going on a Disney cruise and said, I want to hold my drinks. So I'm going to schedule my surgery six months before my Disney cruise, you know, for example. But make sure it's done in a way that's very smart and thoughtful so that he does not end up with straight fingers that make his current function worse. And I'm so glad you're going to re-engage with occupational therapy. They are much more valuable at times than surgeons. Um, but Botox, fusions, if he was younger for children, we do something called fractional lengthening. So children who have congenital or birth injuries that lead to the same presentation, you can actually lengthen their tendons and relax the muscle but at a certain age, it may be a little too far out for that. Mm. Yes. Uh, thank you, Tasha. And I, I pray for full recovery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to Houston, Texas. That's uh, Dr. Caritha's backyard uh, where she was <laughs> raised up in Texas. Got a Tor- Houston homie on the line. All yes. right. Torrance. Hi. Welcome. Yes. Uh, Professor Hunter and uh, Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Taylor, thank you all for the conversation today. Um, when I got in the car after work and heard the conversation and Dr. Taylor working in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it just struck me this story that I occurred in my role in my job, I overheard a conversation of two executives. And because of my role, maybe they thought I didn't understand or know what they were talking about. But they were talking about hiring and people that to consider and one man counts for the other that he needed to work on posting his job. And he said, I'm not posting nothing. That DNI, we're not going to DNI anything. Do not include. And um, my question is, how can we be sure that these programs that are uh, corporations are investing in them and they're trying their best, how can we be sure that they're not being sabotaged by the inside, by the same people that we're trying to free ourselves from in corporate America and in all of these institutions? I can, I can take that one on. I think about that often. I appreciate your call. Um, I have been very fortunate to learn from a lot of thought leaders who are, you know, in this space leading at different institutions One of the things um, one said in particular, she said, I am not in the profession of changing adults' minds. That's number one. You always have resistance. There will always be naysayers. And sometimes they're saying it because of the peer pressure or assumption that that's what they need to say to belong with a certain group. But there's a book, you can't see my shelf, it's red. It's called Strategic Diversity Leadership by Dr. Damon Williams. And he talks about 
this natural journey of people who are early adopters for DNI and those who are late adopters and then those who are just forever resistors. Once I stopped perseverating about the resistors and looked at the program for their strengths and benefits and the results they proved to show, then those comments didn't bother me, especially if the top leadership, however you perceive that or, or believe that to be, was supporting. And so from an outward look, if we are recruiting broadly, if we are advertising jobs to HBCUs, to community circles, if we are paying people fairly, if people have the same pathway to success and opportunity as everyone else, then those comments really are, are marginal and, and they really don't stop. The danger though, is when you give life to them. So we've had um, an incident at where I am right now for ortho residency. You know, we are not known for being very diverse, but this year, many programs in ortho have matched more underrepresented in medicine minority, future residents, and more women. And the social media outrage about it has been horrible. And I don't feel bad about the comments that are being said. I feel bad for the young women and the young black med students who should be excited about becoming orthopedic surgeons, but are instead being met with this vitriol. So one of my leaders said, oh, maybe I should reply or make a statement about it. Uh, you know, right or wrong, I advise them, don't give the power. You know, don't lose, I think Karen, you say, don't use oxygen on this because it's not worth it. As long as we stay steadfast, I mean, that's what our ancestors did too, correct? And so that's the way I approach it. So hopefully you can silence, mute the hate, the resistance. I expect it. I know it is there. As long as they don't get in my way, we don't have a problem. I yes. love that. Yes. I love that. All and of can it. I say, and can I say, Torrance, too, I appreciate this question so much as well, because at, exactly as Dr. Taylor said, it is to be expected. We are in a country that is built on this. So I'm never surprised when it happens. But I think the other thing I would add is to say that because I have never had a DEI position, um, your question is a wonderful way for me to think about how this has applied for me. And what it has underscored for me is how important it is that we're in every arena, right? We need those who are in the structured positions and we need those who are in unstructured positions so that we can attack from every angle because the foolishness is coming from every angle. So for me, for me, what it has meant is really doing what I can to change the culture of different spaces by giving people different language and giving people some of the ways that they can talk back to those kind of comments. So um, creating workshops where I'm not in your organization. And so the reason why what I say actually has a ripple effect is because I come, I drop it, and then I go. And then the people who are there are empowered to talk back to the foolishness so that the culture of the space can change. So I just appreciate your question, Torrance, because it's a reminder that we're needing to do this work from every angle. Amen. Uh, we're here. When we come back, um, the number, by the way, 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK is the number if you want to join us in conversation. Dr. Caritha Mitchell is here. Uh, her book, award-winning, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. She's also a professor of English Lit at the Ohio State University. And Dr. Erica Taylor 
is here as well. She's got an amazing organization. She's amazing. Everyone's amazing actually here. She's a professor, assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Duke University uh, School of Medicine. You're still there doing that. And she also is the chief medical officer of diversity and inclusion uh, uh, there as well, vice chair of diversity and inclusion, Department of Orthopedics, Duke Raleigh Hospital Orthopedic Medical uh, Director as well. (laughs) She also has an MBA. She also has an engineering degree and she's got four children and a husband. All right. So when we come back, I, I need you to uh, please explain the four children and the husband and how you navigate all of these things, because it's the, the one thing that I've, I've most uh, sacrificed and, and happy with my choices. Dr. Karitha is happily unchilded as well. Um, yep. You have four. There's, there's a lot. So I, I think maybe there's strategy in that, too, because the two, the two take care of the other two. And then you don't have to worry about it. Like, cause my parents got slick. I was like, all right, we're going to wait till we have a babysitter. I was like, Oh, oh I see what happened here. This is a bull crap. No. So let, let, let me find out your strategy, Dr. Erica, how you juggle it all and have a supportive husband as well. Cause uh, that's everything. We're here with Dr. Caritha Mitchell, whose playlist is struggling for me. It's a, it's a struggle. Uh, but it's her playlist. Smith too. We were, we were talking about you behind your back, uh, during the break. So I just had to bring that forward. Ooh. And y'all we have, always foul. We, we, no, it's, I told you though. Um, and Dr. Erica Taylor is here as well. Uh, before we get into the stuff that we're all, all the things and take people's call calls, what's, what's on your playlist right now? What's in rotation? What brings you joy musically? Okay. So this, I was not prepared for this, but I will be very honest. A few weeks ago, I went to Vegas and saw Usher in residency. Okay. And so, as such, my list is full of, you know, everything. I heard that show is fire. That it makes me want to go to Vegas because Usher's got a, 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 he's, I mean, not just the tiny desk, y'all playing that meme with him, watch this, Uh but Usher's library, it's, amazing yes. how is the performance because he uh, can still move he's it he's was his, yeah. amazing okay it was amazing i have video that i will never be able to show anyone who oh. i want to respect me okay um it was it was money well spent um and it was great and you know as a side note one of my staff members i took her with me and um she said i don't know any other surgeon who would <laughs> take me to a usher residency i said that's right you know, duly noted. That's how we roll. But I mean, it was it was so much fun. Um, I had good seats, and his and apparently there was a woman two seats next to me who they kept checking on. That was his mom, and so oh, wow. you know, I felt like ooh, I owe her an apology for how I've been. <laughs> you were behaving in this concert. <laughs> but that being said, a lot of ushers stacked there. When I operate, um, you know, we get to play music, and I try to find something that is. You know, palatable to the group. Don't want to offend anyone, but I have stuck for ten years now with '90s or 2000s R&B. That's so, the right answer. Thanks, yeah, Miss. Wow. Can you give her? Can you give the doctor some applause, please? Yes. Something. Yes, <laughs> Dr. Erica Taylor. All of yes, that. Yes. I, had a, I had a young man, Come on. about twenty years old, and when he came in the room, I think Poison by B. You know, of course, yes. you know, Poison yes. was playing, and I. He was like, "You have some good music," and then he's twenty. He says, do you happen to have any Anita Baker? So, oh. That's nice. the right. By golly, I do. By golly, I do. <laughs> so. 
who's in concert so right me. now too that's my playlist yes. that's so my playlist. dr caritha ursher and you gotta call him ursher you get he's not just usher he's ursher to us uh-huh. Uh-huh. anita baker needs to make her way in all like she got a thousand songs they all sound the same but they give you the same feeling too you know you go go get you know fairy tales one of my favorites because she tells a whole story i mean it's amazing uh yeah and, and any janet you know 90s and 2000s that's that's the decade those are the decades yeah, it was great okay all right um thank you speaking of that four children how did you do that with all of this other stuff where did you find time to get it in i just there's no time there's never any time there's zero time there's negative time in fact you know young ladies who are going into surgery will say what's the best time there's there's none and you know when i was going into you know all these dreams fulfilled and and pursued that i wanted to do being a mother was not something i thought about and you know i even getting married to be honest and then one day i was a resident and met met this guy I knew from college. He was wearing purple and gold. He looked a lot cuter than when he we were in college. And <laughs> so we ended up getting married. And my first year of practice, I, you know, there's a gap between fellowship and practice where you are not insured, where you don't have health insurance. And so I felt a little ill, a little queasy, but still went to Mexico. And I mean, all these things have fun. And then I get to my first year of practice and um, go to the doctor because I have insurance now and find out that I'm pregnant and pregnant with identical twins. What? And the interesting thing about that, you know, from everything, all the narratives that have been told to me as a med student or resident, I knew for sure that my partners in my practice would say, this is why we don't hire women. Instead, and that was my own bias, a caller mentioned bias earlier, Mm. they proved me wrong. It was, you know, congratulations. They threw me a baby shower. My chair of my department sent me a pair of bunnies with with the identical girl's name, you know, embroidered on it. And I had to recognize that I have my own biases against majority colleagues that they would look at me some kind of way and they did not. And um, I went on, I operated, you know, because again, I, I love what I do and I worked very hard to start practicing. But at about 30 weeks pregnant with the twins, my partner said, please stop doing hip fractures. Please stop. You know, that's, you know we it's wear, heavy lifting, right? That's heavy lifting. Heavy lifting. And, you know, I had to let go of needing to feel like I was proving something. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, I will just, I will just be a pregnant woman. And I carried them um, 36 and a half weeks. I think the nurses in the OR said if I had showed up one more day, they would have refused to let me in the OR. They said, please go home and elevate your feet. Maybe I look swollen. That was a hint. But um, I ended up delivering them. They were five and a half pounds each. They bundled them up and put them on, you know, my chest. And and that was it. And so they're about, they're a little over nine now. They are, they look like my husband, but they act just like me. Um, and they're amazing. And it was so amazing that another surprise came after that. And that daughter is five. And then I have a one-year-old son. What? My husband what? got his, got his boy. Oh my gosh. You know, um, I, I often say girls usually look like their fathers because they don't get to breastfeed and do all of the things so that they have to fall in love with the child. Cause it looked just like them. Uh, and yeah, so, uh, I, I, yeah. I I'm one. 
that said, um, the, the hardest thing about doing all of the things and also being a mom to four little ones, I mean, the nine-year-old is still kind of little, too young. The nine-year-olds, yeah. two of them. Yep. <laughs> What's the most difficult part about this for you? Ah, uh, that's a good question. You know, um, I, I don't think this is true for everyone. I had very uncomplicated pregnancies. I thank God for that. That is not everybody's story. Um, the twins, they, they have the same face. So they take care. I mean, they're like, they're super close. So it's like a built-in play date. Now, um, wait, wait, the do heart- twins run in your, your family or your husband's? Because identical twins, that's a, that's an egg splitting. That's, a, that's usually genetic, yes, like the baby pinky. Right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's funny. My husband likes to take a lot of credit for that. Like, oh, let's put that egg. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> really, really, bruh, really. But um, you know that if you read the books about twins, there is a genetic predisposition. And, and my favorite part of the books it says it is an act of mother nature. Like it is something that almost like just a blessing just for you. And so I think about two or three generations ago, there may have been a hint of twins, but nothing that we knew about. So, but the, the hardest part is, uh, I think something you said earlier, Karen, about like, you know, imposter, not wanting to have, you know, some of that like feeling of not belonging or being different. I thought imposter syndrome for me would show up more at work. It actually showed up more for me outside of work. Mm. And so, you know, I had some really hard, you know, internal struggles with church in the South here in North Carolina, where if you were a woman working outside the house, it was like you were carrying out like, you know, devil's work. Mm -hmm. And so I felt, you know, like I wasn't quite the same, you know, as the people at work, but I really wasn't quite the same as, you know, like a stay-at-home mom or something like that. And so uh, the hardest part was reconciling that you know, I think you said this earlier this week about I'm not going to fit. We were not designed to fit. We're individuals. Mm-hmm. And the who I am as an individual is phenomenal. And because of that, my children will have the potential to be phenomenal too. So I lean into being imperfect. You know, I'm sure I have some notes I need to write, you know, for patients that I saw yesterday. And there's some clothes that need to be folded that may be worn before they make it to my closet. And I'm okay with that because it's not what's important. It is how we make people feel when they're around us. It is the legacy we're building, the doors we're opening for others. And that I had to prioritize that and let go of prescriptions that society had for me. Hardest part was really outside of work, to be honest. And can you say more about the outside of work in terms of parenting in partnership? Because, you know, as Karen said, I am happily child-free and I feel like that has been such a benefit to the partnership that we've created. So you're doing something that for me sounds incredibly challenging. Um, And part of what Karen always does is create a space of community conversation so that people are listening can get some insight. So I'd love to hear you talk about the way that letting go of roles has worked for you in your partnership and parenting. Yes. Thank you for asking that. Um, I hope you're listening to my husband, but you know, really it was um, on both of our parts, right? Because my vision of success is, you know, go, go, go. Sky's the limit, you know, keep reaching. Oh, they're doing that. You can do that too. Mm -hmm. And his vision of success was different. It was, you know, 
Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas mm. dinner, Easter dinner, all cooked by the woman, right? Woman stays home, even if it means collectively you make less money as long as she's home. She, she, she. Um, I mean, from family, from, you know, church, from, I mean, it came from all angles, but that didn't really work for us. My husband had a vision of retiring early. He wanted to retire before age 35 or 40. He's always been that way. He was a teacher in DC, taught for about 13, 15 years um, in some of the public charter schools in the area, Northern Virginia and DC, taught chemistry as a black man, got his master's in chemistry, um, but still wanted to do more that allowed for freedom. And so at the same time, he wanted freedom from corporate world or teacher world. I wanted more investment into the work world. So when we started swapping time, it made sense. That was not something I ever looked for in a partner. It is not something I would have thought at age 25 or 30, that would have been important, but I'm so happy mm. that that was the plan for me. And then when you go to COVID, for a year plus of homeschooling, I looked at the first, he laughs at me, the first email the teacher sent about at the time three, our daughters of, you know, what they needed to do every day. I got, I got some palpitations and he looked at it as a former teacher said, Oh, now this is easy. I got this. Nice. And so daddy school commenced. And I so those this. are some of those things you can't plan, but you make the best of, and then you see why you were partnered why you were aligned, it, it all made sense. Um, so that's us. I mean, again, we, we have to understand the love languages and, and all these things, but it's not because someone else is telling us that's what we should feel. It's because we are examining yeah. ourselves and learning how our upbringing influence what we need from each other today. Yes. Wow. I, you, we, mm. All right, so you have to come back at some point. I I feel almost like I, I apologize to the people that need you, uh, including the children <laughs> you know, and your patients. But uh, and I'm just so grateful that you gave us all of this time today. Uh, so nourishing. Uh, so I just want to say thank you to you uh, and and your Pleasure. orthopedic thank orthopedic diversity leadership consortium. LLC. Orthodiversity.org. There we go. Orthodiversity.org. Get in community with Dr. Erica. We tweeted out her personal handle as well as Ortho Leader DEI, uh, where you can follow the uh, organization. Thank you for, for being a part of this, this family of ours. I appreciate you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.